Greetings, friends. This is Paul Nixon, and I am here with Kevin Johnson, and we want to welcome you to the Church's Changing Podcast. Kevin is Director of Children's Ministries for Discipleship Ministries, and really, in that sense, is sort of a pace setter for children's ministry for tens of thousands of congregations in the U.S. and beyond. Kevin, welcome to Churches Changing. Thank you for having me, Paul. Glad to be here. These are crazy times in which we are living and serving. They are indeed. And everything that we just had down to a science in 2005, we've had to readjust and relearn and sometimes throw it out the window. Before the pandemic, I I was hearing anecdotal reports from churches I was working with that the programs and paradigms in children's ministry, which were working, say, around 2010, had begun gun to fade in their effectiveness, and the, the kids were like glazing over, you know. And then COVID hit, and many Sunday schools in the UMC did not meet like in person for a year. And then last year, about this time, I was working with a downtown church in the upper Midwest that had a full-time director of children and families. And they had done a stellar job of adapting to the new culture and all this stuff. And they had kept a solid quorum of families with kids all across the years. And then... That after the pandemic, nobody came back. And it was like, oh my gosh. Have you heard that kind of story? I have. I mean, that's it's a, a similar story that I've heard, you know, across the country and across the nation, actually, as we come out of COVID. It's funny that we, before COVID, spent so much time as, as parents or as children's ministry and family leaders monitoring screen time. And then all of a sudden, you know, from years of saying, put your phone down, get off the computer, you know, do some real life interaction. Now, all of a sudden, we're faced with everything's done online. Yes. From school to church worship. And so I think, you know, COVID certainly affected attendance because one of the things that happened was as children got accustomed to coming to church. And, you know, historically, I don't think churches did a very good response of how, how do we integrate the entire family? into our worship experience or into our church life. And so a lot of times children were released to a children's church or they were left in Sunday school as the adults worshiped segregation kind of occurred in in worship environment. And then when the COVID hit and we were doing online worship, I think the kids just kind of were forgotten in the other room of the home or, or left aside as the parents put their faces in front of the computer monitor to, to worship. They, dismissed kind of that interaction that children needed in the life of the church. And so I think that has affected the family unit tremendously in recent years and is part of the reason why they're not coming back. I think we incorporated Zoom into our adult lives, but we left the kids behind, so to speak, in a lot of ways where we didn't fully engage the family unit together. And pastors didn't find ways creatively to connect to the family unit as a whole. So I think those those things certainly ha- have affected our, our family ministry approach since the COVID began in 2019. I think some of the things that need to change in the shift needs to focus on why we do faith formation, why we do discipleship, and not necessarily an abundance of programming. You know, I've served in churches over years where we they, they say, and they're proud of the fact that they say, we're the church that's known in the community as the one that has the light on all the time. But as we know, families are totally uh, overwhelmed with involvement in, in things, and church becomes secondary or, or dismissed completely. So I think that's affected attendance as well. You know, I was working with a church in a major city recently 
where they had a lot of young adults, a lot of recent graduates from universities, first jobs. They have an online pastor. And I said, how many people come to your online service? They said, about 12. I said, you're kidding. Because when we look at churches that of older adults, they might have 50 to 150 that are attending. But these are young people in that particular group who just got screen timed out during the pandemic, a lot of online classes, and they're really craving interaction face-to-face. And I wonder as you go younger than that, that's Gen Z, that's the rising Gen Z. As you go to the other end of the Gen Z, which is, I guess, in junior high school now, and even earlier, these kids have spent a lot of time on screens. And there's a point where I don't want to do that anymore. We definitely failed to effectively engage young people during that period of time when we were dealing with screens. But now that we've come back, I'm just wondering if if some habits were lost for some families in the scramble of those of those couple of years. I think some habits have been lost and I think there's a, there needs to be a shift in in kind of the culture of of how we look at and view children and family ministries. And one of the habits that we know and we preach all the time, but Paul, you know this in discipleship ministry, certainly is discipleship, form- faith formation begins with relationships. Mm-hmm. And, and that was lost with the screen interactions and that real-time face-to-face interaction, whether it be children's leader, pastor to the child or parent to child, um, has even been affected due to the just the consumption of of technology and the amount of time that, that teenagers on down to kids at an earlier age are interacting with their phones or iPads or technology. So we need to get back to that that face-to-face real-time relationship is, is a key to how to strengthen and build beyond the pandemic. I think one of the other things that we've learned through this process is uh, of coming out of the pandemic is that as children's leaders, we need to not only equip and empower and do ministry for the children, we need to focus on the entire family, and that means empowering and equipping, walking alongside the parent. And so this shift of, of how do we minister to the parent and, and equip them to have those interactions, have those conversations, and, and give them the opportunity to navigate faith formation in the home that goes way beyond the couple hours that we have them in our church settings. We know that statistics have shown parents have so much more influence and time to influence their children in faith formation. I love that, that we're really taking that seriously because it's been kind of hit and miss over the years, but people who had that in their home really had a leg up on people who did not. You know, if you had parents who were able to spend time, not maybe even reading a Bible story in the evening, or I remember reading the children's version of Little Pilgrim's Progress, you know, which was a real helpful, imaginative faith stimulation that was going on at home. And all of that, being able to to have faith conversations with parents, that's just an enormous privilege and honor. And equipping parents to do that, a lot of parents don't feel like they're up for that conversation. They feel unresourced or they don't know the Bible and so forth. And and I think that's part of this the shift of, of culture and understanding is is empowering the parent to not feel inadequate. And one of the statistics that stuck with me over the years since the beginning of the pandemic is the average parent that we encounter in our churches has the faith understanding of a confirmation age child. 
So you're talking sixth or seventh grade. Parents are going to be embarrassed and not necessarily readily admit that. And so they're going to push back and say, you know, you're the expert. Let's just drop the kids off for programming or for children's ministry activities, and now pick them up later. But the alternate option is what we are trying to get churches to understand is it's a journey together. Let's go on this journey together and equip parents to, to model faith. Just like you model everything else in life, kids are going to learn from by example. You think of the imagery of the child looking up at his dad shaving in the mirror and he mimicking his dad as a, as a toddler of, of what how you shave your face. Same thing can be applied to prayer life. If you model that to your children in the home, they're going to pick up on it and continue to do that ongoing, a much more longer duration than, than what we have for the couple hours we have them in worship. I remember back in vacation Bible school, in my own experience, many years ago, there was this couple, Warren and Hazel Simmons, and they were from Iowa. I remember that, and they were ancient then, and you know, and they lived for <laughs> 30 years after that time, but they seemed so old, but they loved kids. They just loved kids. And so, we, so there were the teachers for the Vacation Bible School class that I was in one year, and they said, we're going to spend the first part of the time, we're going to work hard, do, we're going to memorize Bible verses and all this. Yeah. And we did, because the reward was in the second part of the time, I don't know what the girls did, but the boys, they brought us model airplanes, and, we, and, and with the little intricate parts, and we would build model airplanes. My father found out that we were building model airplanes at Vacation Bible School. It didn't impress him very much, but... In retrospect, those people are so memorable to me because they were they were faith grandparents. And I can't even tell you the, the verses we memorized, but I caught the faith that they had and the spirit of who they were and their ser- their servant hearts, you know. That was pretty amazing. I think one one of the, the powerful ways that we, you know, that you just ex- described, Paul, is just the pouring into another individual your faith and and, you know the energy that you have around that one of my favorite passages of scripture that i always reflect and and teach upon is the sheep and goats in matthew 25 where the sheep you know asked where did we when did we do this it just became habitual Mm -hmm. it became part Mm -hmm. of who they were as followers of jesus that they didn't stop and think about it or want credit for it they just poured themselves into following jesus and the love poured into the other person those witnesses then, you know, described that or understood that as this is a caring environment. This is a loving, trusting, you know, person or persons. In your case, the Sunday school teachers that have done this forever, they must care about me. And ultimately, that feeling of love that a child needs or that an adult is craving as well is is just key to how to deepen those relationships and and build faith formation. Uh, that's a powerful testimony. And it also speaks to the fact that, Paul, that one of the things we encounter a lot of times is the church is saying the kids aren't coming back or we don't have any kids. You know, we have a set of grandparents and we that the parents are so busy bringing, you know, doing life with their kids outside of church. They don't have time to bring their kids. But the grandparents are the ones that want to be that model of faith for that for that family unit and bring the grandkids to church. And so I've seen that as an example of, of in response to churches that say, we've got a ton of grandparents and elderly folks, but we don't have any kids. How do we get more kids involved? And, and that's, that's a way to do that is to embrace that grandparenting, nurturing relationship. If I could bring back Warren and Hazel from heaven, I'd put them on a tour right now because there's a lot of churches I think they could learn 
from them just being themselves and just really caring and loving kids. And, and for you, it was Warren and Hazel. For me, it was Mr. and Mrs. Vogel, third grade Sunday school teachers, but they were there forever. And, you know, as a third grader, I probably thought they were 120 years old, mm-hmm. but they just cared and loved about every child that came through that third grade Sunday school class year after year after year. It's amazing. For churches that are trying to build back that, that were either they haven't had kids in a while or they really feel like they lost their connection with kids and families during the pandemic and they're, they're sort of disoriented right now, what are a few best practices for those kind of churches to consider? I think one of the things is, is in this paradigm shift of equipping and, and empowering parents, uh, the family unit, so to speak, rather than just focusing on programming for the children, is this uh, transition from should to could. And as we equip parents, we tend to want to, as leaders, we want to tell them, this is what you should do. These are these are the things you should do to get your kids more involved in, in the church or into Bible reading or whatever, uh, but providing them more a less invasive options oriented approach. Um, you could try this. We we know that mm-hmm. every family unit is so different nowadays. Every family unit comes to us in a different way, and so how do we respond to all of them differently and, and unique to their their family unit context? Um, so flexibility is key. Uh, I think one of the things that we need to do, it like I said, is to provide parents options. Providing options will remove that shame and doubt of feeling, like we talked about earlier, that they're inadequate to develop and nurture their family's faith formation. They just don't know how. We we use language in, in a course that I'm offering right now is we need to take the approach of being a help desk, being attuned to them, to the parents, to the children both. And that involves a deeper level of a commitment than just listening. But be available to them and be present and be a praise leader. Praise them when they do things. Sometimes the things that the parents try to provide to their kids may not work, but praise them for the effort. Praise them and point out in those moments that do work and offer that could rather than should. Follow up with them. Stay with them along their way in the journey and share and reinforce to them that you're with them on this journey together. That's part of the role of the children's leader is we're going to see this through to the end. One of the languages we use is, is, is to use coach as kind of that imagery of and add the word coach to our job descriptions. Allow them space to learn from mistakes, but encourage them to focus on their strengths as a family and praise them for their effort. And I think ultimately the power of, of very good storytelling is, is just key. Sharing stories with the children and the youth that connect to God in healthy ways Stories that tell of the attempt of the family to deepen their faith from the Bible, from the scriptures that we learn from and grow from. Allow them as families to share their journey as parent or as the family together. And we know that family life is filled with ups and downs. I'm dealing with a flooded kitchen right now because of family issues that, you know, children just sometimes forget to do things they're supposed to do. And so we we focus Uh on, on... yeah, the, the, the uh-ohs of life and, and, and remind the parents that that's part of growth, uh, not only as, as an individual, but as in your faith formation. Share stories of that encourage. We all need stories of encouragement. And so share stories that reflect on the different kinds of family structures and social and economic status. So be inclusive as you share these stories and so that we can hone in on and connect to all those different families that are coming to us from different directions and different angles of life. You know, 
over the last few years, even before the pandemic, I was watching some pretty good creativity in different congregations where they were keeping either, they were either just below the critical mass to have a functioning robust Sunday school, or they had a lot of kids who were with mom this weekend and dad this weekend. It was just real hit and miss on Sundays. And, and, and I watched what different ones of them did. And I'd be interested in your, your thoughts on this. I, I, there was a few churches I noticed that took out a couple of pews at the front and put in small tables with chairs. And there, were, and there would be usually a couple of adults that would be sitting down, maybe on the front row that would kind of gently guide. But there were little activities going on, coloring Bible stories and all. But they were surrounded by the music and the Apostles' Creed and all of the, the goings-on of a, of a faith community. And then they would go to a, to a story time after that. What do you think about that kind of thing? I love the imagery. I mean, what you described, a lot of churches cause the, the kind of the playground area, P-R-A, uh-huh. instead of playground area. But as you described it, the first things that I hear, heard, you, heard you say, and as I create this image, is the kids are up front and center. Mm-hmm. They're not put to the back. They're not, mm-hmm. you know, and, and as, as a new parent to a church congregation or worship service, one of our biggest fears is, what if my kid acts up? How are they going to respond? Mm-hmm. And so I'll sit in the way in the back so I can duck out if if my mm-hmm. child gets too restless. And we as the church, we respond the wrong way. We do turn and point our fingers or say, shh, your kid's too light. But putting them up front and center, letting them interact with the playground elements, but also interact with and engage in, in, in these emotions of worship alongside of other adults that may or may not be related to them. But having them up front and center, that not drawing attention to them, but to remind them we're all in this together. This is a huge inner integral part of inclusivity and intergenerational worship. And I love that imagery. And I, you know, I, I can talk for hours about just intergenerational opportunities. One of my favorite words is holistic. But what you just described is a holistic approach to faith formation that includes the entire family and doesn't exclude based on age. Well, most kids, it would seem to me, I mean, I think it more than seems, I think it's it's fair to say most kids have kind of a snoozing, I'm going to put up with this for 15 more minutes experience of church, and it's painful, and they're they're bored, and they're having to, it's just not, it's it's not age appropriate. And then they, be, and then they begin to associate a sanctuary with boredom and sort of misery and like the Charlie Brown school teacher. And, you know, I remember as a kid who was part of a vital church, I remember the sermon being, you know, rah, 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 rah. I mean, I remember it just being, I have no idea what that was all about. But there was enough other good stuff that was going on in that room that I felt it was my room. I felt it was my family. It was my house. It was God's house, but it was my house too. And I think that's a key if we could, could, could create a sense in kids that this is your place, your home. I think the vast majority of children in church don't experience that. It's a space for rules that are that don't really kind of work with my age level or my attention span or whatever. It's just not not my zone. And then they carry those attitudes right on into adulthood. Not my zone. I don't know. I'm not sure what they're doing in there, but it's not my zone. When I discovered my call to, and I reluctantly pushed back to God for many, many years, but when I finally accepted my call to children's ministry, uh, I made a commitment to myself and to God saying, 
you know, I want to create in the children's ministry and family ministries that I'm a part of an environment where seven or eight year old Kevin would want to be and, and would be thrilled to be a part of. I think what you described, Paul, is, you know, we as leaders, a lot of times when we're not focused on children, you spend so much time in seminary paying good money to learn big, fancy words. And we feel like in our sermons, we've got to fill it with fancy words that that go over the head of a lot of the adults, much less the kids. And so if we can just not water it down and not tone it down, but just embrace and use a different understanding of, of communication, which maybe involves multiple intelligence learning, applying different ways to, to connect to each audience member or the hearer of the word, of the message. We can start by offering opportunities for those children to be more engaged, more involved in the worship itself as we talk about worship. Maybe they just say a prayer. Maybe they help the ushers collect the offering. Maybe they they read the announcement. Something small, but just build that in. Maybe it's a prayer for them rather than just that devoted time of children's moment and then they release. That was cute. Children's ministry and worship and faith formation doesn't need to be cute. It needs to be what it is. It needs to be discipleship. And so allowing that opportunity to happen and unfold can kind of take the the fear factor off of us as leaders saying, I don't know how to do this. Start small and build upon it, but just slowly build in and add different elements of incorporating children into the worship environment and and see where it takes you. Well, speaking of cute, (laughs) (laughs) the children's sermon is either the worst element or it can be one of the best elements of a worship service. But when you, and, and obviously when it's done to be cute, it just fails miserably. But what what is maybe a never a never do in a children's sermon? What's something that's just like you're on the top of your list, like whatever you do, don't do that. And maybe what's something that's always good to do with a children's sermon? Well, I mean, I would tell somebody that's not used to doing it or doesn't have the comfortability of or flexibility of, of being able to just think off the top of their head instinctively with a response. If you ask kids a question, you're going to get a response. Right. And you better be ready for whatever that response may be. Because it could be Um, anything. It could be anything. And if you're not prepared to answer anything or to kind of deflect it back into making sense of the children's sermon, then I would not ask a question that way. Maybe do wondering questions of, I wonder how you would feel, or I wonder what this would suggest to kind of diffuse that. But I think, you know, one of the things that I think inevitably that we forget to do or or tend to do when we're not used to or comfortable talking to children is we talk over their heads. And if you look at, just sit back and watch a lot of pastors that lead a children's sermon and you can just tell on their face, they're not comfortable in that moment, but they do it. And the kids aren't paying attention. They, they're not captivated by what's being said. They're looking elsewhere they're distracted for whatever reason. And so I think, you know, that's one of the things is is to talk to them just like you would anybody else in your congregation. I think that that would impact the children's moment quite a bit. One of the things that I've loved about children's moments and being a part of it is at the end of the service, when a parent comes or an adult comes up to you and say, I know what you did. You're not just talking to those kids up front. You're talking to everybody in the, in the worship area. You're just disguising it as a children's moment. And so when they can p- get something useful out of the children's moment as an adult, then you know you've, you've hit a home run. You've, you've, you've done your job. Yeah, yeah. 
And it's not about dumbing it down. Sometimes it's just about clarity. It's about finally being able to express something in really concrete clarity. Because kids, you got to be clear. You can't be the the vague and the nebulous just doesn't have much much appeal. And we tend to use in children's ministry. We we, we tend to a lot of times use object lessons. And we need to be careful that the object doesn't become the lesson, that it yeah. just enhances what you're trying to teach. And if it becomes a distraction or takes the child's mind or, or thoughts elsewhere, then that object lesson didn't really do what it set out to do. So that's another kind of stay away from a thought and idea. The pastor Sunday, where we worship, it was Labor Day, and she had one child that came down. And she normally doesn't do the children's time, but she did this week, I guess, the the children's minister was on vacation. And so she's down there and there's one kid. So it's she and them. And there they are. Okay. And I don't remember the question she asked, but I remember the answer. And I remember how well she rolled with it. The answer was, it was something about why does God, you know, why does God use us? And the child said, because God has a lot to do and God gets tired and needs some help. Okay. That was the answer. Okay. And you know, theologically, you'd have to, you, you got to have to work on that one for a while. You know, that's a, that's a pretty deep thing. But the way that she responded in saying, you know, I hadn't thought about it, but it is a big job that God has, you know, and the way she didn't necessarily endorse the child's the, theological assertion, but the way that she engaged with that child, I thought it was masterful. Mm-hmm. And the, the conversation continued in a way that honored the child for daring to, th- to spit out an answer by herself, down there in front of 300 people, you know. So, But what I liked about it was the fact that she was relaxed and, as if she were with that child sitting, you know, in a living room somewhere, just having a, a, a fun little conversation, and she just kind of blocked out all the rest and was fully present with that kid. And I thought, well done. Now she navigated, you know, the, the comment uh, and, and kind of navigated and journeyed with the child together to collectively get to the result that she was looking for, which takes time and takes yeah. you know experience. And, and it's a great technique. I think one of the things that we, if we don't do that, we encounter later in life with, with young adults is then we have to go back and kind of unwind wrong views of God mm-hmm. uh, that they have kind of created from those comments or, or maybe bad theology that they've picked up along the way somewhere. Uh, and then as adults, they have these views. That, and p- sometimes parents bring those views to their family, and the child picks up on them from the parent's point of view. And so we have to, as children's leaders, we have to kind of do our due diligence to remove and unwind those wrong views of God. And that revolves, involves conversation, and it rev- involves just having a theological conversation that's age-appropriate. It's been said you need kids to get kids. And if, if a church doesn't have any kids, it's kind of hard to get. You, you have one family that comes in, they look around, they're gone the next week. And then the other family comes and, and they're gone the next week. This is so common. What can a church do that wants to minister to children, but where there are so few showing up at any given time? I think one of the things that, that we tend to focus on as, as church is, is, is the worship is the, the primary location for families, which I think is true, but I think there are other doors and opportunities into the life of the church that children, young children especially, can experience through 
the church environment. I mean, whether that be a weekday preschool, if your church has that, or an after-school program, or if you're not that large. Uh, you know, I served in churches in Kentucky where basketball was religion, and so we would run a basketball league, and I'd see thousands of kids come into our ch- gym of our church that I didn't see necessarily on Sunday morning in worship. But that didn't prohibit me from ministering and pouring myself into that family situation. And so I think, you know, finding other opportunities on ramps for those families to enter the church and engage in conversation, engage in community outside of the walls of worship. After school, homework, help. As you mentioned earlier, grandparents and their role. I mean, what if a a set of grandparents or several adults just stayed after church or in a church room after school every day and helped kids with the homework or they even shut-ins could do it on the phone line and, and assisted kids with homework or, or grandparents or, or somebody doing that. So I think part of it is you make it unique to you and you, what your context works for you, get to know the community around your context and engage in conversation, especially to those parents on the fringes that you don't necessarily see elsewhere in your church life, but you see them in the community. And then listen to why they're not coming to church and ask them point blank, you know, can you tell me your thoughts of, of your you know, faith life in, in your home or how can I help you? I think those are, are places to start. You know, sometimes I see churches that you've got a Presbyterian church over here and they've got three kids that are there sometimes. And you've got a Methodist over here and they've got six. And you have an Episcopal church over here and they've got two. You've got the Disciples Christian church over here and they may have four or five, and a Lutheran. Do you ever see effective partnering between churches that have small numbers to come together to do significant children's ministry over the year? Is that something that you see much of? And if so, how do you do that well? How do you make it work? I've seen it done well in, in certain areas. I think one of the things we, we always are cautious of is we get into, involved in, in sheep stealing or sheep swapping and you're not going to take my people to right. go to something. So we've got to lose sight of that. Uh, I've seen it fail as well. And in, in, in within you know, just our denomination, United Methodist Church, where the larger church wants to incorporate the, the smaller church into vacation Bible school or whatnot, the smaller church gets offended. Mm. We don't have the numbers you do. So, you know, how dare you kind of come along and help us because you don't think we're able to do that. So we've got to kind of lose sight of that intimidation factor and, and that ecumenical approach is, is a, a wonderful way of, of bringing the community together. And, and you know, regardless of, of if they're Presbyterian or Disciples of Christ or UCC or, or United Methodist. You know, I sometimes I have recommended when, when churches do that, try to pick some other churches that are in a similar state rather than having one large program of children's ministry and youth ministry, and, and everybody else becomes sort of the moons that revolve around that. It, by partnering together with other churches that aren't maybe much bigger than you are, it, it's hard for one to, to dominate or to to really begin to 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 steal the, the gravity and the pull from some of the others. But that's just been my experience. I, I tend to recommend, unless there is a real trust between the large church and the smaller churches, that and that we're all on the same team and there's a real lifting up and, the, and a valuing of the smaller ministries by that larger church. I, you know, I just say, find, find some people of sim- in a similar situation. 
when we did the basketball league, it was at, at its largest. It probably had fifteen hundred kids and youth involved. That's a lot of basketball. It was a lot, and it was a lot of time in the gym. But it was you know five or six different denominational churches and that, that we partnered with that would send teams and we would and so we had to be on the same page of what the league looked like in each mm-hmm. gym and what yes. the devotions were were taught about. And I think one of the things that you described that imagery of of collectively coming together, you got to make sure you discuss and have conversations with the children about theological differences. I mean, for us as United Methodists, communion looks a lot different than it does for other denominations. That doesn't mean don't do it or stay away from it. It just means let's have a conversation about what this means and and have an age-appropriate conversation to increase dialogue, not just for the kids, but for the family together. Most parents aren't going to be able to answer the differences of communion or or something like that as well. So that's a a prime opportunity to kind of offer conversations side by side, parent and child, which ultimately has always been my goal is when the family leaves on that Sunday or whenever worship ends, are they having ongoing conversation about what they experienced in the life of the church throughout the week? And and that's a perfect way of, of kind of describing that. You know, to change subject here before we have to go, Affordable housing is a big issue in the United States. A lot of young families are having a hard time keeping a roof over their head. And a disproportionate number of people that are below the poverty level are kids in the United States whose parents are having a hard time keeping a roof over their head, or if if the roof's in in place, keeping food on the table. So kids living kind of on the edge of of, um, basic survival. And so knowing that, I... It caught my eye this week when I read in our local newspaper that our church's public school district, 12% of the children are unhoused, of the students in the schools. And that means they're living in a car or they're living in someone's spare room while they try to get back on their feet again or a shelter or whatever. And I'm guessing that those kids, that's a pretty stressful life that they've got going there. I don't know. It's going to vary from community to community, but there's a lot of poor kids and families that are that are really needing some TLC. What what kind of opportunity or tips would you have for churches that want to be present and respond to families that are living in economic crisis? Yeah, I think what you described, and as you mentioned, it's difficult for the child. It's difficult for the entire family. Yes, and as an adult, as a parent. Do I feel welcome? Do I feel comfortable coming to a, a church environment where, you know, I feel shamed? I don't have a house. I, yeah, I feel like I feel like I wiped out. Here's all these other people. They're, they're they're it's working for them, but I'm you know I'm a dud. I'm a bad parent. And I come to this church and I'm hearing stories of success and the offering plate passes and I don't even have anything to put in it. You know, no. and so it becomes quickly a place that I just don't feel like I want to be a part of. And so part of that is the compassion that we as leaders, as church, need to just envelop into these families. And one of the things that I've learned in in recent years is that the kids that are coming to our ministry are different, so different than even before the pandemic, but so much different than when you and I, Paul, were kids growing up. Uh, And we had those third grade Sunday school teachers that impacted us so much. We know that kids are coming from uh, and products of experiencing trauma from either it's divorce or it's, you know, just 
bullying or adoption or abuse. And so these adverse childhood experiences is what they're called, ACEs, uh, needs to be a primary focal point of our ministry opportunities. How do these ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, uh, how do we be proactive and how can we be proactive and connect to those children that are hurting so much in our community? And so in these children, we've experienced trauma that manifests itself in misbehavior. And, and so they act out. And, and, you know, how many times do you hear the Sunday school teacher say, I couldn't handle that child. He was just acting out so much. Well, it's because of this adverse childhood experiences that they've encountered in their life, whether it be, you know, poverty or homelessness or whatever. And if we just kind of take the same approach that we did in 1970, it's not going to work. And so we need to train our leaders and our volunteers to be intentionally about empowering the kids to showing them how to be successful and how to have a voice and what's happening. We need to use storytelling in a productive role-playing kind of to discuss and illustrate how people in the Bible experienced hardship as well, but how God worked through those situations. We need to reinforce that with our kids. We need to provide children and parents the tools and examples to support that they need to support and to succeed. And we need to understand fully what adverse childhood experiences we will encounter as leaders. One of my favorite stories and heroes in children's ministry is a pastor that lives in Kentucky, Louisville, that I've known for years. And for years, 10 years, actually, he had a church that was dying, a United Methodist congregation, that early on in this ministry, they just said, we're going to become a community center around this church for kids. And this was in the worst area of Louisville, Kentucky you could be in. I mean, the stop sign, literally, they had spray painted. I wouldn't stop here if I were you. I'd keep going. (laughs) Right outside the church, drug deals, you know, 13-year-old kids doing damage, uh, violence, being arrested, you know, daily. And he opened this church that served as a church, but also a community center to these kids that were so hurt and so traumatized that in, in a matter of years, this became the safe haven for these children. And that that became the go-to place for them to be a part of, whether their life outside of those walls of that church building were just, you know, hell on earth. They found a a respite, a safe place in in the life of that church. And it's just, I love that story. And, And it's continued today. He's serving in a different church and busing those kids in and out of that church. But to hear him tell, we do communion in our worship. And these eight, nine, ten-year-olds that have all this trauma know the worship liturgy or communion liturgy by heart, Mm. and they can recite it without looking in the hymnal. How many adults can do that? How many regular, ongoing, regular attenders of our Methodist, you know, United Methodist worship services can say they can do that? And yet, these kids that are filled with with adverse childhood experiences have found the love of God in the church. So, and the bottom line to me is just love them love them so much and love them just like Jesus would. But we need to be attuned to those families' situation and listen to them. Uh, we also need to facilitate conversations that allow us to listen more deeply and truly hear those situations so that we can remove the shame and the guilt and the, that ideation of, I don't want to be a part of this church because I don't fit in. Uh, we all fit in, and we all need to find that place where we all feel the acceptance and the love of God and the forgiveness that God provides. 
you have provided some really great ideas that sort of get us out of the rut of thinking we that children's ministry is something that happens either right before or during the worship service on Sunday morning. And it's there's so much more space where we can find ways in to build community with kids and families and thinking a little broader. Kevin, thank you for your time. Thank you for your ministry among us in the UMC. Thank you. Anytime, you know, to me, the key is just breaking out of those silos of segregated ministry and just becoming intergenerational and having a holistic approach to not only the church, but outside those stained glass windows as well into the community above, around us. Excellent. Excellent. I'm Paul Nixon, and I am here today with Kevin Johnson, who's the Director of Children's Ministries for Discipleship Ministries, which is an agency of the United Methodist Church. We've had a great conversation thinking about the ways that children's ministry is changing, but also the amazing opportunities that are around us if we want to take advantage of them. Church is Changing is a podcast ministry of the United Methodist Church. Church is Changing podcast is a production of Discipleship Ministries, an agency of the United Methodist Church. Music is by Sanjay Singh. Visit all our podcasts at podcast.umcdiscipleship.org.